Hello and welcome to yet another episode of An Unqualified Guide to the Good Life, the show where we try to work out what it means to live well despite having no qualifications to do so. This time, as happens on occasion, we have outsourced for some qualifications. My name is Adam and with me as always is Nick. He's sat in Geneva doing his thing. But more importantly, also with us is Dr. John Newth, who is a uh, clinical and forensic psychologist who has come on today to talk to us a little bit about psychology. Hi, John. Good morning from Auckland, New Zealand, gentlemen. <laughs> yes, we we, sh we should be saying that um, John is calling from from Auckland, uh, so it's ten a.m. for him. It's nine p.m. here in in the UK. Nick, it's ten p.m. So um, yeah, it'll be a weird energy, but <laughs> but here we go. <laughs> um, so John, yeah, I I uh, we got in touch with you. Um, I I've known you for for a long time. You were a friend of my dad's at university. Um, when I was That's when right. I was young, you you lived with us for a bit while you were finishing your PhD at the University of Birmingham. Um, yes, there was uh, 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 and I, I think that um, you, my, you said that it was it was penance for for breaking my back, quote unquote, when I was about six years old <laughs> in two thousand and two, coming on this podcast. You you had a certain partial um, for, for rough play, and I think one day I thought I'd broken you, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you woke up the following morning um, right as rain, as if nothing had happened. So um, yeah, there's a lesson to be learned there somewhere. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, sorry for bringing this up all all, all the all, so many years later. Um, <laughs> And and so in in this season season three of an unqualified guide to good life we're we're talking all about the mind and how thinking about the mind and thinking about thinking can help us live a better life and so um, we wanted to to get you on as a professional really to ask sort of what what a what a psychologist thinks about the mind and and how and how and how that can help us to to live well so um, I suppose I'll I'll start out John if if that's okay if maybe you could introduce your, yourself a little bit and the kind of work that that you do and and. Um, yeah, what, what you sort of do in, in, in your day, daily job. Okay, well, I suppose the official title is I'm a UK and New Zealand qualified clinical psychologist. Um, so obviously clinical psychology is a discipline or a, a sub-discipline of psychology. And I trained in the UK. Uh, I did my first degree in Reading. I did another master's degree in rehabilitation in Southampton. And then when I uh, when I briefly lived for about a year at your house, uh, I did my doctorate in clinical psychology at Birmingham. And uh, so I've worked in the UK as a clinical psychologist in mental health facilities and uh, in brain, brain injury rehabilitation. And then I emigrated to, with my wife, my New Zealand wife and my children to New Zealand in 2007. So I've been living and working uh, mainly as a forensic psychologist, uh, because of the way in which uh, the health service and the forensic services are structured in New Zealand. I've been working in that capacity since about 2010, but working in mental health and forensic psychology in Auckland, New Zealand, and around the country in New Zealand. So that's my my sort of work background, really. Hmm. That's it. Very nice. um Sorry, uh, could, could you, um, so obviously you, you made the distinction of clinical psychology being a subcategory of psychology. Would you be able to elaborate just a little bit on um, the ways in which it, um, uh, or what is specific to clinical psychology? Of, okay. Um, yeah, no, of, of course. So psychology and, uh, broadly. I mean, there's a few definitions of, of what psychology is or the study of psychology. So it's, it's about the, the study of the mind and psyche, but 
essentially it's about human human behavior mm-hmm. and uh, I, I guess as human beings and social creatures we're all amateur psychologists of one description or another we're all trying to work ourselves out and, sure, and, sure. and work out our place in the world but uh, in terms of work uh, psychology can be is carved up in, in in a number of different ways there's educational psychology which is to do with learning and education occupational psychology which is to do with job, work performance, recruitment, uh, occupational matters, uh, industry psychology, and then clinical psychology, which is probably the biggest subspecialty of psychology because um, it's it's considered to have the most help for human beings, I suppose. So it's uh, so clinical psychology is the is is the discipline that looks at understanding and alleviating human human distress i think that's probably one way of describing it forensic psychology is the application of psychological knowledge to assist the courts whether it be criminal matters or whether it be to do with civil matters or people being placed under mental health legislation so psychology has got a number of applications clinical is probably the largest uh subspecialty and probably employs more people than those other disciplines uh, put together, I suppose. Um, Forensic uh, psychology is a discipline, is a formal discipline in the UK. In New Zealand, it's, uh, you can call yourself a forensic psychologist. It's not a, it's not a protected title. And, and as a clinical psychologist, you could work in well, you can work with people across the lifespan. So from infants right through to, uh, people in palliative care or older adults um, and there's a number of different schools of thoughts there's behavioral approaches there's cognitive approaches cognitive behavioral approaches and what people would would consider to be called psychodynamic or psychoanalytic the, the sort of cliche of the person lying on the couch and the, uh, <laughs> the psychologist the psychiatrist massaging their their beard and and coming out with various ideas and platitudes about that person's mind and their psyche so that's right. not an area that clinical psychologists are traditionally trained in but they could go down a psychodynamic psychoanalytic path but typically speaking we work with people on on a behavioral level uh, or on a cognitive level using talking therapies uh, those mm-hmm. those that, that sort of way of doing it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, just so off the back of that, um, because mm. you thank you, you gave a, a, a very elaborate response, but I noticed you um, almost interchangeably used the term psychologist and psychiatrist. And I was wondering if um, <laughs> is there is there well, an elaboration there worth making? Yeah, I, I interchange psychologist and psychiatrist at that point, because uh, strictly speaking, um, psychiatrists were the inventors if you like or the forerunners of talking therapy okay. that was something that psychologists took on and, uh, and have run with and and it's it's part and parcel of what we do psychiatry now and certainly the more biomedical aspects of psychiatry uh rightly or wrongly or perhaps unfortunately really have, have, have tended to go down a psychopharmacological prescribing route uh, and their discipline, which was a lot broader, I believe, uh, has gone down a more treatment medication mm-hmm. uh, route. And obviously, psychiatrists are different to psychologists. Psychologists aren't medically trained. 
um, psychiatrists. Psychiatry is a branch of, of, of medicine and psychology is the application of psychological science to, to address human problems. So that's the distinction. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a, sure. I'm a doctor of psychology. Okay. That, great. That, that's um, that's a, a a great distinction, and um, I, I wonder if I can ask again off the, off the back of that. Uh, you say that you know psych, psychiatrists have largely gone on the down the psychopharmacological route. Um, it yeah, and and by saying unfortunately, it it sounds like you feel that perhaps that is uh, not always um, the most appropriate uh, way way to treat psychological distress. So I wonder if you, if you could speak briefly on the role of. Um, Talking therapies versus versus medication in terms of uh, yeah psychological distress or, or or lack of well-being there. Sure, I mean just to qualify that, I, th there, I think there is a place for for medical and and pharmacological intervention certainly, but um, I think that given that psychiatry did begin the idea of of, of talking therapy and have. Uh, largely, um, no, no pun intended, dispense with that approach. Um, <laughs> they, um, I, I, and interesting, there has been a push within psychology for psychologists to have prescribing rights, which I think would be um, a, a really misguided course to go down. I, I presented a paper called Placebo and Not Beyond, uh, because placebo is very, very important, very, very effective. Um, mm. um, but I think uh, just as solutions to human problems aren't found in the bottom of a, of a beer bottle or a wine bottle, I don't think the answer to psychological distress are necessarily uh, solved by um, pharmacology and um, I mean, people still talk about things like chemical imbalance. I've got a chemical imbalance, but it was never really, it, it didn't get painted in the first instance in the right spirit. This idea of a chemical imbalance in the brain is a, is a, is a theory. It's a, it's a concept. You know, there's no psychiatrist on the planet that could tell you what chemical is out of balance, where right. it should be in the brain, what the levels should be, what the levels currently are. So, it's it's nothing more than a, a metaphor or a heuristic of of why a person may be uh, experiencing disease rather than disease. Right. Interesting. And um, and I, I, I suppose that we we've maybe got gotten gone ahead of ourselves a little bit by asking that. But but I, I in in terms of the talking therapy that was the origin of of psych, psychiatry and, and and a lot of what clinical psychology is, what what goes into a talking therapy and what sort of um what sort of yeah dis disease can it can it help to sort of um alleviate or help people process what 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 does it how does it work and how does it affect people I, I how does it work I'm asking great question and if anyone could answer that i would be all ears i really would i don't <laughs> i don't think we know how it works uh the hallmarks of good therapy is the therapeutic relationship between the therapist, psychologist, and the client. I use the word client and not patient mm -hmm. uh, because um, I can remember having an argument with my father one time who works in, in the NHS or did, and he got, took exception to me using the word client. And uh, he said to me, solicitors and prostitutes have clients, you have <laughs> patients. <laughs> and I 
took exception to that because I don't work in a medical model. So um, I work in a, we work in a collaborative way. The person brings themselves and their knowledge of themselves and their knowledge of their history. And we bring the psychology and the, the, the two meet in order to try and find a way to bring about um, uh, a better outcome. We're, we're agents of change, but we work alongside people. So how do talking therapies work? By whatever means, they bring about insight into an issue and they bring about change, change on a behavioral level, change on a cognitive level, how someone would view their situation um, and how it may have arisen. So uh, the hallmarks of a, of a what, what clinical psychologists essentially do are three or four important behaviors. One of them is assessment. One of them is clinical formulation, which is distinct from diagnosis. So clinical formulation is creating collaboratively with the client a working hypothesis as to how the problem has arisen or what does it look like? How has it arisen? Um, how, uh, what's maintaining the problem? What's likely to happen if we do nothing? And how might we intervene? So that's a clinical, it's a working right theory or hypothesis it's different from diagnosis diagnosis is essentially a a a, a label being applied to, to then create an understanding so when someone says depression when i say depression to you we would ha have an idea of what we mean but a clinical formulation of depression would be what were the circumstances what does that depression look like how does it manifest in the real world what um how might it have come about and how do we intervene or do we intervene? And uh, talking therapies, uh, that's the intervention part, I suppose, but the, the basis of the intervention comes from a, an assessment and a formulation, a, a mm -hmm. shared understanding of why something's come about. So somebody might feel depressed because, which is essentially uh, prolonged low mood because they may be in a situation where they're being threatened or feel unsafe in their own house, a domestic uh, a, uh, intimate partner violence or domestic abuse situation. And that might be a way of understanding why they feel the way they do rather than um, I've got something wrong with my brain. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. So I, I've sort of gone off topic of it, but the, the, the a psychologist does those main things, which is assessment, clinical formulation, intervention, and then evaluating how that intervention is working, whether it needs to be changed or tweaked. All the time working collaboratively with that individual, them doing the lion's share of the work. That's the difference, I suppose, between a medical model and a psychological model is that it's an active, you need an active participant in the client rather than a passive recipient of a treatment. Mm. Yeah, that's, um... I mean, that's a traditional view of psychiatry. I'm, I'm, I'm doing them a bit of a disservice the most sure, sure. enlightened up-to-date best practice psychiatrists would work in a very biopsychosocial way they would view human distress human difficulties not just in biomedical terms of something wrong with person's brain have a disease very few psychiatrists oh. would would think exclusively in those terms sure sure um and and that 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 is an interesting insight, and and sort of gives gives a um, I think it's nice because the the degree of like a cooperative um, 
you know, formulation of this hypothesis, hypothesis with with um, your client, then is really suggests a, a case by case basis of application of of. Um, that's right. Individualized. Of, that's right. Sure, sure. Um, but then uh, uh, that that sort of leads me then to ask a little bit about. Nonetheless, there are. Um, uh, you know, uh, prototypes or like recurring conditions that you will see across a, a broader spectrum of um, clients know that you that you I mean, there there isn't a, a manual or a rule book, but there are there are still um, uh, quite, quite, um, yeah, quite, quite readily identifiable things like depression, perhaps. Um, yes. And I wanted to ask a little bit about um, how those how those are kept up to date. And actually, this question comes from Adam's dad, um, who wanted a, a bit of an elaboration on the, the on the DSM. Um, right. And... So yeah, the, the diagnostic and statistical manual. It's, it's a basically a. I use this word cautiously. I suppose the, the bible of, uh, of of psychological and psychiatric conditions. And I, I made the point earlier about disease and disease. I. They started off as, as as books of understanding illness and disease, uh, or that way of thinking. But now I think they've morphed more towards uh, clusters of phenomena that can be put together. So mood disorders, depression, um, anxiety disorders such as um, obsessive compulsive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. They would come under the anxiety disorders, and PTSD would as well. In clinical practice, you'd never really meet somebody who is anxious and also not depressed about it. And you wouldn't meet somebody who had low mode that didn't experience anxiety. Um, so that's an important, so they're not discrete disease entities. And when you look at say the description of major, de uh, major depressive disorder, there's so many different permutations of what a depression might look like that uh, it's only really good at using it as a shorthand to have a vague idea of what a person might be presenting with. So I don't think it has a great deal of usefulness beyond simplistically describing in theory what, uh, what, what a condition looks like. And it then probably has more of a function nowadays of assisting insurance companies, funders, um, and maybe giving people ideas of how they might prescribe medication sure it it's probably anathema to a psychologist we have to sort of play the game and use diagnostic categories sometimes to satisfy our referrers but if it's ever if it should never replace a clinical formulation mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is describing what that person's right. experience is like when right. they experience low mood, how does it manifest itself? What do they do? Do they self-harm? Do they avoid a situation? Do they, um, are they literally immobile with, with low mood? It's important because no two people with any condition really are, are, are the same. Sure, sure. Okay, so there is, there is so a, a function. Yeah. And the DSM is created, it's, yeah, sorry, it's, it's a cookbook by committee really. <laughs> okay. And it changes all the time. Right. Yeah. So autism has changed in the way it's conceptualized. Grief now, uh, uh, grief now pops up in DSM, which I haven't paid a lot of attention to particularly. But it's a slippery slope because 
really it's it's a it's a book that should be making a distinction between normal uh, and abnormal which is of course is a nonsense because things right. are are very often dimensional and 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 a continuum um but uh yeah the dsm is created it's a living work created by committee and probably reflects insurance uh uh companies uh, this, the personal interests and research interests and the proclivities of the people in the committee. Mm-hmm. But of course, it does resemble the kinds sure. of difficulties we see in the world, real world. No one, I don't think anybody would um, argue that a phenomena that we might call depression it doesn't exist in the world. Of course it does. We see right. it in all sorts of different guises. We see it a lot. Uh, but I think... I don't know how much attention psychiatrists pay to DSM-5 now. Um, I treat it with a little bit of irreverence, I suppose. Sure, sure. Sure. I, I know that uh, over the years, it's, it's, it's uh, gotten a lot longer of the five volumes. And I, and I feel like maybe the answer to that is that insurance companies keep looking for more uh, loopholes for it, I suppose. And I wonder if that is... Uh, based off your answer, what you would agree with as to why it's getting longer, or if we are um, identifying more more sort of ways that people can be ill at ease that, that require well, yeah. designation. It reflects our culture, doesn't it? So uh, internet uh, addiction disorder didn't exist in 1952 right. for obvious reasons. <laughs> course, yeah. um, um, is is it really need to be in there as a separate category? Uh, could it come under um, uh, and a, 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 not a substance uh, b- a disorder, but a but a, a sort of an addictive uh, dependent uh, type life problem. But uh, of course, it, it, it grows and shrinks in other places, of course. But mm-hmm. it grows in those sorts of ways to reflect the struggles and problems that human beings face. Internet gambling, for example, gambling disorder, those sorts of things. Um, I don't like the term gambling disorder. I don't really like the word disorder. Um, But to ignore that people don't have gambling problems that cause a heap of problems and distress for them and their families, well, that would be crazy to assume that those things don't occur. It's good to know. Um, well, well, that's 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 all uh, re- really important to bear in mind, I think, and really um, contextualizes how how I think a lot of uh, you know, the mental health work is done. And, and that wasn't um, clear to me certainly before. And I and I really like the focus that you have on on um, contextualizing individual patient experiences. Um, but you, but you you say that actually that's not most of your work now. Most of your work is in in forensic psychology, um, working in the judicial system. And I wonder how. Uh, this work changes going from from clients who who you might meet because they are experiencing distress and have have sought you out versus working within the courts and perhaps being mandated to work with people um, or people mandated to work with you I suppose I should say yeah forensic um, all forensic means so my work is largely in a forensic uh, sphere but all forensic means is pertaining to the courts or some kind of court and where where I my work is is a crossover between where clinical meets forensic, really. So where a mental health issue or a purported cognitive impairment 
comes up against a criminal justice issue. So does the person who's allegedly committed a, an arson, for example, were they, uh, and I use the term in, in quotes, were they criminally insane at the time? So do they have an insanity defense? So when they allegedly committed the arson, did they, were they so uh, mentally unwell or mentally distressed that they didn't know the wrongfulness of their actions? So you'd need mm. to do an assessment of somebody to retrospectively work out their mental state at the, at the time of the alleged offending. So that's an, in, so you're answering a clinical question to help um, a, a, a criminal process, which is an insanity defense. You might do an assessment at the level of, uh, is somebody fit to stand trial or competent to stand trial, depending on the jurisdiction. In New Zealand, they use the term fit to stand trial. So if you can't converse with your, or communicate with your lawyer, if you can't and don't understand the, the charges against you or how you might plea, do you understand guilt and innocence, guilty and not guilty pleas, then you're going to struggle to navigate the criminal justice process and it may be an unfair uh, process and the court may deem that person unfit to stand trial. Now that doesn't mean nothing happens to them. If the court still can prove on some level that they committed the act or the omission, then the, uh, a psychologist can then do an assessment as to advise the court as to what should happen to the person. In New Zealand, if you are considered fit, unfit to stand trial, but responsible for having done it, you can't go to prison mm -hmm. because your guilt hasn't been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. It's been proven on the balance of probability. But if you are deemed a risk to the public, you could be mandated to compulsory treatment or compulsory care and rehabilitation depending on what your clinical issue is so that's a long-winded question guys to different stages along that process from arrest to release sure a psychologist can add a lot of value to answer clinical questions about mental health or uh, cognitive impairment mm. uh yeah, I, I want to say a, a very a very minor point from that, and thank and thank you for that answer because that that clears a lot of things up. But um, I, I wonder is the is the term that is used an in insanity defense because because that feels to me like uh, something from the Broadmoor days. But perhaps that is what what is used in in. in no, no, school. you're you're absolutely right. Uh, in New Zealand, it uses the term disease of the mind. Okay. I mean, the word disease bothers me. The word mind bothers me. <laughs> and also, uh, as part of the, uh, in the Crimes Act in New Zealand, um, it also talks about natural imbecility. Wow. Now, when did you last hear the word imbecile used in any way, shape or form? Um, so the oh. law takes a while. People want to change the, um, the terminology. And it is archaic. I absolutely agree. And that's why I, I shudder when I have to use the word um criminally insane or probably I, I term it uh, I might say uh, I, in my opinion I don't think there's a basis for a insanity defense which is a little mm. softer language but again you're right a lot of this stuff is replete with labeling pejorative archaic language yeah, wow. uh, it, it, it certainly um, sounds like it. And actually, it's a little bit of a surprise, um, but, you know, uh, maybe, maybe... I imagine maybe UK be... legislation is just as 
guilty of this. Yeah, no yeah, one intended so. either. <laughs> Just as uh, a bit, but they probably have updated some of the language. Mm. Yeah, but um, probably still still have a, a way to go. Um, I, I wanted to pick up uh, a little bit on um, in the case of of um, you know sort of sort of well as it were determining. Um, you know the, the 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 sanity or the or the um, degree of um, you know uh, alertness and responsiveness of, of an individual's faculties um, in this role. Yeah. How how actually your relationship to a client who is you know not necessarily as Adam mentioned there by choice um, is is changed because one of the things that you referred to along your process uh, crucially was this um, uh, creating a hypothesis uh, collaboratively. You know, um, and I wonder whether, um, you know, it, do you often get full cooperation in this domain of um, uh, forensic psychology? Mm -hmm. And when you don't, um, how does that then affect your work? Do you, are you a little bit more um, of a detective or are you simply unable to continue without in, uh, cooperation? What, what does that do for your own practice? Great, great question. I... When you work, say, in a mental health facility or a, mental, or a community mental health service, it's very clear who your client is. Your client is the person who's walked in and is telling you that they're, they're struggling or they want something to change. When you work in a forensic capacity, the client is still the client, but truly, really and truly, your client is the court. So the person mm -hmm. I'm really assisting is the court. I've got to be independent and neutral. So whether I get asked by a prosecution lawyer or get asked by a defence lawyer in New Zealand, and, and I'm sure this is true in, UK, in the UK, you need to have your allegiance is to the court. And there's all sorts of code of ethics. And in New Zealand, there's something called the High Court uh, Rules uh, Code of Conduct. So an interesting situation is that you have to have warmth and empathy and uh, and be able to work with the person in front of you but you're not there as their advocate you're not there you're there in a more neutral capacity than you would be if you were working in the nhs for example so that's different that's interesting uh sometimes a person doesn't want to be there um now if a defense lawyer asked me to see their client I would go to see them. And if they didn't want me to be there and told me to go away, I would. That would be the end of it. Right. If I'm ordered by the courts to assess the person, they might still tell me to go away. And I probably still would, but I'd still be obligated to write something for the court. I wouldn't be able to write a great deal because as you've alluded to before, it's, it's an interaction, it's a dance. Mm. Two yeah. people have to work together and you can't just pluck information and gather information from somebody um, against their wishes or if they're being um, avoidant or, or uh, they're not cooperating. Uh, I mean, if you'll pardon the expression, um, Nick Adam, I, basically I get asked the following questions. Is the person, I don't like these terms, but are they mad? Are they bad? Are they dim or are they faking? Right. Now, okay. I don't like any of those. <laughs> I don't like any of those terms. But are they mad? So do they have a mental health issue that reaches a certain threshold? Are they bad? Is this just about bad behaviour? Is this just about criminality, or has their disabilities or their challenges 
having an impact on that. Uh, DIM, well, in New Zealand, uh, people with an intellectual disability, which is a, which is a firmly uh, defined diagnostic category or disability category, people with an intellectual disability shouldn't really end up in prison. Um, mm -hmm. So that's an important thing. So people's IQ, their level of intelligence, and also are they faking or are they uh, misrepresenting themselves? Now, somebody could be two or three of those things. They're not mutually exclusive. And of course, I meet people who are willfully malingering. They are really trying their best to um, make out that they, they, they've got serious problems. I, I don't know how whether this cultural reference will go over your heads, but uh, I don't know whether any of you watch Blackadder, where the guy he's in the trenches in the First World War uh, claiming to be um, mentally unwell and put, putting a pencil up his nose and, right. and, and muttering nonsense. Well, yeah. you know, we won't see that in a forensic capacity, but sometimes uh, people are making quite big efforts to misrepresent themselves now in some jurisdictions that's literally a matter of life and death if you're in a, in a state where there's a death penalty and you can prove you've got certain difficulties that you don't have then you could literally avoid you could literally avoid the electric chair so it is a it's probably a, a wise uh tactic or at least worth attempting uh in new zealand we're a little more enlightened uh but but malingering faking uh, exaggerating are is part and parcel of a of a forensic sure. assessment for sure. 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 And uh, just uh, one additional um, question about this particular topic is: um, uh, so you mentioned you know working uh, with the court as your client rather than the individual in at least certain cases. Does that also put you under time constraints that you wouldn't otherwise have um, in terms of like oh yeah you know providing a diagnosis for lack of a better way of putting that. Or providing an opinion, mm. so the, you might get asked the question: Is this person fit? Or is this person fit to stand trial? Or does this person uh, were they mentally criminally insane? Or at the time of the uh, alleged offending? But yeah, you're under time pressures. There's 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 court. There might be a fitness hearing on a certain date, so the report needs to be prepared in advance of that and seen by both sides of the fence, prosecution and defence. Um, but, but, but yeah, there are time constraints. The, the wheels of justice move fairly slowly, but uh, we have to provide reports to certain deadlines. Um, absolutely. Um, and going back to what uh, you mentioned earlier about the clients and being, being neutral, if I wrote a report that, that sounded biased or favorable to, the, to the, the client, the person, then it would just get ripped to shreds in court uh, presumably by defence, and it wouldn't actually serve the defence lawyer and his client or her client uh, very well at all. If I wrote a report that was very, very damning uh, in the other direction, then it would be attacked again by the court. And, you know, after a while, your credibility as an expert would would wane with the court. Uh, you'd probably get a reputation for somebody who doesn't, doesn't write or conduct uh, work of a particularly high calibre um, so an, 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 an expert as well as an expert is somebody with specialist knowledge that the court deems to be an expert. Mm. Um, if I was working with somebody in a mental health capacity in, in the NHS and then they committed uh, 
an alleged offence. Uh, I would, I could be uh, summoned to court as a, as a fact witness. So they, they might ask me, did you see this person in your mental health clinic? How many times did you see them? Blah, blah, blah. I'm there as a fact witness, but as an expert, if the court deems you an expert, then you are afforded the opportunity of providing your opinion on things, which is a distinction between a fact witness and a expert witness. Other, I, I wonder if from being an expert and, and um, as we've, we've touched on a few times that there are, there are categories recognized within the judicial system which don't really reflect the reality of the situation. Has there ever been a scenario where you've had to turn around to the courts and say, I can't pass an opinion on this because the situation in which you have, have sort of placed me doesn't reflect reality well enough? It's like you, you, you've tried to oversimplify things here and thus I can't give an opinion. Has that ever come up or have you ever wanted to say that? No, good question. I, I think this might answer that question. So in New Zealand, um, if your fitness to stand trial is called into question, then the process goes down a, a different route. And I was asked um, by a court to determine whether a person that they had deemed unfit to stand trial had an intellectual disability, which meant that they could qualify for care and rehabilitation. Now, when I met the client, it was very, very clear that he didn't have an intellectual disability. And so I then uh, provided that opinion. I hadn't been told previously that the court already had determined that he had an intellectual disability. So really that process was, was mapped out all I really, I was put, put in a difficult situation. Uh, I'm in a situation then where I'm saying, Your Honour, you want me to place this person in a care and rehabilitation setting, but I don't think they qualify. But a previous court has said that they do. So I guess the only thing I, I in hindsight, what I could have done in that instance is just withdrew myself from the process and say this is my opinion it because what would happen if somebody is unfit to stand trial and then doesn't have an intellectual disability the only option the court can do is immediately release them right. well this is somebody who could be very very risky and so i was sometimes the court paints itself in a difficult position and mm. then by ver that by virtue of being in that situation so are we so you've got to sometimes um, deal with ethical dilemmas. And I wasn't prepared in that instance just to say, well, the court has deemed this, I agree. I would say I disagree, but the court's quite entitled to do whatever the court sees fit. Courts don't like being told what to do by experts and rightly so, but so we have to sort of respectfully say, Your Honour, I believe this. Respectfully, mm -hmm. I believe this, Your Honour. Um, and then it's up to them. But if a court deems somebody Hungarian and they're not Hungarian, <laughs> they are Hungarian. <laughs> Legally, it's been determined they are Hungarian. And that's the, that's the fact of the matter. Until someone appeals it and changes it, of course. Yeah, I, it, it's off topic, but I remember reading a, an article a while ago about a, actually a Hungarian who had um, <laughs> disappeared for many years and, and upon resurfacing in Hungary found he'd been declared legally dead. And it for like three or four years was couldn't do anything because legally they were a dead person yeah. and took so long yes. to get it overturned. <laughs> yeah. Now, no expert, 
a medical person could say, Your Honor, this person is clinically alive, <laughs> but you could never say that they are they are legally alive. Legally alive. <laughs> that because um, that's for a court to determine, and it's a, it's it, those little quirks are quite humorous. But there's some poor soul, soul at the end of that who can't mm. do a damn thing because, in the eyes of the law, um, he's a corpse. So that's an interesting example you bring up there, Adam. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I, that, that was uh, my, my, my questions on, on, on forensic psychology. Nick, I don't know if you, if you had any others before we, we moved on to... to yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess sort of by way of a transition, I, I sort of wanted to ask a little bit about um, some of, you know, sort of these are some of the more practical challenges uh, in a sense of the role of a forensic psychologist. And I wondered about... Um, in the process of trying to build this relationship in order to create a sort of hypothesis and then propose a way of intervening, are there, um, are there some like personal challenges to the role of psychologists uh, or are there some qualities that, um, you know, are particularly useful in this capacity? I, I know this is a, a fairly um, broad question, but um, yeah, I think um, I wanted to get a sense no, of, you I know, think it's a fair question. You've, you've, you've got to have, when you're sitting in a room with somebody trying to uh, answer a question for whoever that, whoever needs the answer to that question, whether it's that person themselves or whether it's a court, you need to be, you need to create an environment where people can tell you things that are very personal. They may never, they're very threatening, very unpleasant, uh, sometimes embarrassing, sometimes filled with shame so the approach to take is is just to be human and 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 be open-minded be non-judgmental treat the person uh with a degree of warmth and regard and you might be meeting somebody who has a a, a litany of sexual offenses for example against children that's probably one of the more challenging situations but you still have to meet them in dialogue on a human level um, there are reasons why people do the things they do. I'm not making excuses for people, but but you do have to have a certain, you have to be aware of your own biases. You can't get rid of your own biases. You have to be aware of your own history. You have to be aware of your own reactions to somebody when they're telling you something um, because, uh, you know, people can gauge a lot by people's expressions and their words and their nonverbal uh, communication so yeah you do have to approach things in a professional way but in a in a non-judgmental way and and the nuts and bolts of an assessment and, and work is a is a clinical interview and it might involve some kind of psychometric assessment they might be explaining certain phenomena or symptoms i don't like that word but phenomena they may be experiencing you might want to look at their iq or their cognitive ability so uh, to do any of those things, you've got to create an environment where you can work with somebody and they will work with you. Um, something that was said earlier about uh, how to talk in therapies work, well, we don't really know. There's been some very good studies that have looked at different therapeutic approaches. And the research seems to show the following finding, which is 
all things pretty much are equal, whether you use a cognitive approach, a behavioral approach, a psychodynamic approach, they probably all work in the same sort of ways. They all seem to work or be equally effective. Some approaches work better for than others for certain types of conditions or certain types of phenomena. But essentially the vehicle, what helps, you can't do a great deal without a therapeutic alliance with that person, a good working relationship. You don't have to like each other, mm. but you have to be able to work together. And if the therapeutic alliance is functioning, then in theory, it doesn't really matter what therapeutic approach is or modality is being used. It's all about the therapeutic mm. alliance, that collaboration. Sure, sure. So the, the ability to, to create that um, environment and to, and to, and to yes. foster it. Um, and, and, and largely... And largely the, the client does the lion's share of the work. I mean, I used to have people come in, are you going to make me better? They would ask. And I said, I don't make people better. I work with them. And if, if you're able to do much of the work, then things will, things will improve. If mm. I have to do all of the work that I fear not much sure. will change. Sure. Sure. And that's hard words, I suppose, but that's just being honest and genuine. Mm. About how, about, about how it works and who does the who does the work yeah yeah uh, and and i think um that that interactivity is is um really really an, an engaging thought um as as, as as you've mentioned a few times and, and and i really like that um i i thought a little bit of um maybe a, a, a question you could answer at a more personal level that maybe it speaks to other psychologists as well as um, being exposed to some of this information, which might be, as you said, confidential, sensitive, um, really something not uh, necessarily that that person is comfortable sharing otherwise, or um, say in the forensic uh, context might be, uh, you know, uh, criminally implicating or otherwise, um, presumably mm -hmm. at times you're then coping with albeit other people's stories, but nonetheless very heavy ones, and also perhaps things which you then yourself have to, you know, sit sit with as an individual and and can't really um, spread out. Um, and and so you know, my my question, at least in the first part, is do you do you um, do you then sort of struggle? Is it easy to turn off from that? Are, is there a you know is there such a thing maybe as almost being too uh, em empathic or empathetic uh, in this context is mm. are you able to then distinguish from your own life to the to the um, to that of your of the clients that you're interacting with well and, and, I mean it does have an impact on you um, when you hear when you sat in a room and you you feel the I mean empathy true empathy is when you feel what other people feel mm -hmm. and if somebody's telling you very unpleasant unpleasant traumatic things that have happened to them you it does have an impact you sit there and you to some extent you you feel the emotion and some sessions you you know you feel like you've been 12 rounds with Mike Tyson um and it's hard um but I think early in my career I used to have blinding headaches when I used to meet certain clients I felt like it was just weighing down on me but you've got to look after yourself as a psychologist we're pretty hypocritical and bad at self-care but mm. uh, that phrase doctor heal thyself and you know you can't help other people unless you're in a good place yourself but you get better as your career goes on at compartmentalizing those things you've got to be careful that you don't get burnt out there's been times when I felt somewhat burnt out 
I don't think I've ever felt um, callous or indifferent to people, but that's always a, 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 a product of burnout and can happen. Uh, I can remember once working in a mental health facility in South Auckland, which is a very uh, economically, uh, socioeconomically deprived area. Very nice clients, Pacifica families, Maori families, European families. And I remember taking a week's holiday and just halfway through the week, just looking through the deaths notices, just making sure my clients didn't crop up there because of suicide, for example. So, you know, you probably, when you see yourself doing that, you realize that the caseload that you have is quite a risky caseload of people who are teetering yeah. on, on, on self-harm and suicide oh, and are really sure. struggling. So that's not a guy that switched off during his week's holiday if he's looking through the, the, the death notices or wondering whether his client's going to crop up in, on, the, on the front page. But you've got to make provisions. You've got to make sure your clients are, are being catered for when you're not there. And, but ultimately, all your what I've taught interns that have been with me is really all you're responsible for is your own behavior and conduct at work. You're not responsible for other people's lives. And only when people are completely unable to look after themselves or a danger to themselves, do you utilize mechanisms to then take the power from them. Mm -hmm. That's when unfortunately people uh, have to be detained in the Mental Health Act or have a community treatment order where they have to receive care. Um, mm. But ultimately we're just responsible for our own conduct at work. We're not, we're not responsible for other people's lives really. Sure, sure. Sure. Uh, and that's how I cope because if I did feel that people's lives are in my hands and they're not in the same way that a surgeon or a, or a, a certain medical doctors are but if I felt that I think I'd feel the pressure and I'd probably want to run a mile from from the work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, hey, thank you that's that's a, that's a wonderful answer and I just wanted to ask you one more question about the subject before I pass on to Adam because I know that he has some other thoughts but um, with with that in mind um, you, you sort of mentioned the sort of the doctor heal thyself thing and I, and I know I brought this up before we started the episode but um, you do you um, do you think that then is the, is there a level of expertise um, in this you know this field of really you know uh, human behavior, uh, whether through the lens of psychologist or otherwise, that you um, you know are are able to handle both sides of the conversation for yourself, or do you think um, you uh, do you, do you, you know do you benefit still from um, you know, having, having someone else to talk to, I think, because, uh, and the reason why I ask is, you know, I, I know a lot of people still maybe have taboos about some of these things because they can be uh, things that they would normally consult a psychologist about because they can be difficult to talk about, you know, and so people have a tendency to, um, you know, self, self-diagnose or, uh, yes. you know, consider themselves self, uh, you know, re resilient enough, um, to, to handle the situation on themselves. But, um, I think it, it would be interesting to hear, your 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 take on that um as well as someone who's more of an expert in the field yeah, yeah i i mean there's times when i feel down or upset or whatever and i can't quite fathom or work out why and that's a bit strange for a psychologist you think well mm. i should know but but uh no one's immune to this sort of stuff no one's immune to the to the the, the troubles of life and you know, we're all going to face uh, bereavements and, and losses, etc. But I think it's just about having a good, 
good range of activities, good friends that can approach you and tell you what you're missing or tell you what you're not seeing or asking if you're okay. Because sometimes only until you're asked, are you okay? Do you really realize and stop and think that maybe you're not? So uh, I don't personally think psychologists are better than any other people at spotting that sometimes, possibly better than most, but certainly not. We don't have special powers in that regard. And uh, we may be the last person to see it and, and, and other people may spot it. So um, I don't think it's good to be reflective and introspective all the time. You can you can navel gaze far too much, and 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 uh, and that's not always healthy. Uh, but at the same time, I, I try and practice uh, meditation. I don't do it as often as I perhaps should. I try to practice mindfulness, um, and those things help. But I usually do those things when I'm feeling. I, I usually do them reactively rather than. Mm proactively which i which i should probably do a bit bit more of sure yeah i certainly feel the same way but thank you thank Mm. you for those answers yeah and it and it's uh it is encouraging because i i also am a a, what what am i called yeah a reactive meditator and i think that it's encouraging (laughs) to hear someone in the uh who who uh it works in 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 mental health saying saying uh that as well um and should be more proactive. And, and my, my other question that I wanted to ask, which relates to this, and you, you've, you've sort of answered already a little bit, um, it relates to in, in terms of, because you know, we've spoken a lot about the, the, the relationship that forms between um, the, the psychologist and, and the client. Um, but then I, I wonder what the, what the role of, of, of sort of um, self-help in this, you know, there's a lot of self-help books out there, a lot of them, a lot of bad self-help books, but good ones as well, practices like mindfulness. Um, and, and also we, we've, we've spoken sort of um, uh, before this call, John, we've spoken about positive psychology um, briefly. And, mm. and so, yeah, self-help, positive psychology, how, how what, what the relationship of this to sort of mental well-being um, is in, as a versus i suppose get seeking treatment well i mean i don't know whether i agree with what i'm about to say here but i almost think (laughs) psychologists shouldn't in theory we shouldn't really exist right really psychological problems should be absorbed by our friends and our loved ones and we should ideally have uh, societies and cultures that can can self-heal in a sort of naturally resourceful way rather than having third-party people that we go to mm-hmm. that we've got to pay money to or or, or have to be uh, have a job specifically designed for that but probably that's a little that's probably a little um a little naive there is certainly a place for self-help there's certainly a place for things that shouldn't you can over-engineer and over-treat things i think there's places for counselors but there's also a place for your mate or the mate down the pub and or 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 talking and walking with a friend and and offloading it doesn't it shouldn't necessarily often or always be outsourced to a so-called professional um there's some fantastic work that goes on around the globe i'm sure but certainly in new zealand a, a very famous rugby player called john Kerwin, who was a terrifying big fast uh, winger who uh, in recent years has explained the struggles he's had with anxiety and he's done so much on a community level to to get people to start recognizing when they're feeling when they're struggling 
where to go, what to do, use exercise, use meditation. Um, I mean, if people tapped into that, then they would deal with things earlier and there wouldn't perhaps be a need for things to be referred further up the chain. Um, so there's a lot of, um, I mean, my, human distress, I believe, comes from trauma, overcrowding, poverty, racism, uh, people feeling disempowered. Um, that's largely where it comes from. Um, and if we can take measures, uh, non-specialist, I suppose, measures to, to address those, then we, self-help, there's, a, there's absolutely a place um, for self-help. Um, yeah, I, 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 like I said at the beginning, I don't, it would be great if there was a world where psychologists were out of work, they weren't required because all those issues got mopped up naturally or further up, further down the food chain, I suppose. Did that answer your question? There was another part yeah, of it, Adam, uh, that I failed, I didn't, I didn't answer. No, no, that's, 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 that's great because it was just about the, um, the, the second part was just about the, the role of it versus as, as the relationship between the, the psychologist and the client, but you've sort of answered that in saying that that relationship doesn't necessarily in an ideal world have to come from there, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, psych psychologists, psych psychology or clinical psychology can, I think one of the, as I said earlier, one of the things that makes it distinct is psychological formulation. But another distinction is psychologists can intervene at various levels. They can intervene with the individual themselves. When you work with young children, you intervene at the level of the parents, actually, and they mm. put in place things to then have a positive impact on their child. You can work at a family level, at a systemic level. Uh, you could work at a policy level or a community level. Um, I mean, an example of working at a community level, which isn't purely psychological, would be alcohol initiatives or smoking initiatives or gambling initiatives or ways in which people can understand the difference between emotion and the difference between psychopathology or something that's very, very problematic. The last thing we want to do as psychologists is to start pathologizing normal emotion or justifiable right. emotion. And that was one of the issues with grief now being in the DSM. That's a slippery slope. We don't really want to go down too much. It's normal. It's expected to feel down, depressed, bereft when you lose somebody. And from, I view it from an evolutionary perspective as well. And I think many psychologists do. You know, we are the products of our ancestors that responded to threat. Those ancestors that didn't respond to threat were eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. Right. or were run over by something and didn't pass on their genes. So we're effectively hairless apes. We're hairless great apes. We're primates without claws, without big fangs. What we've got is our brains and our ability to work cohesively and collectively with other human beings. And I think that's the reason why some of the biggest threats that we feel and the biggest causes of mental distress or psychological distress is when we feel ostracized by other people or lonely or and that's why internet bullying and social media are so pernicious and potentially harmful or the media when we hear about a murder 15 times in the media we hear 15 times a day well our psychology our, our biology is going to say wow that's 15 murders when really it's 
we've heard about one murder 15 mm. times and that murder was the other side of the globe so there's there's elements of, of us as human beings to respond to threat but i think we have a tendency an evolutionary tendency to perhaps overly respond to threat sometimes and we need to override that like don't ask a psychologist what the state of the world is because we don't <laughs> really know we don't ask a hairdresser they're going to meet right. a better sample <laughs> of the community than a psychologist we rarely meet people when they come into the room and we say how are things going or how can i help they ne- they rarely say oh no everything's fine i don't know why i'm here i just came <laughs> for a chat right they're there for a reason but a person going for a haircut is going there because they want the haircut and they're going to perhaps have a better cross-section of maybe what's happening in their community or how, what the health of the, the community or the, or the risks of assault are in a community than maybe a psychologist. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's, um, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, well, I, um, we, we, we've gone on somehow for, for an hour already. I have uh, perhaps just, <laughs> just one more question. Nick, do you, do you have any 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 further? Yeah, it's. Uh, I've been thinking about it just this last two minutes. I have so many potential questions, but okay, I'll, <laughs> I, <laughs> I will try and uh, limit it to one. You you give such wonderful answers. Um, I'm okay. I, I think what I what I uh, sort of maybe to to stay on topic rather than opening a, a whole new dimension. I wanted to ask you know you were saying about not uh, knowing about the state of the world and and you know ideally a lot of the uh, the worries of um, that people have, which psychologists must address, could be community um, embedded. And actually, this is something Adam and I have talked about before. But um, it, you know, some, sometimes, like like you know, like, like you said, actually, people are justifiably unhappy, um, and because because of context, right? Um, and yes. and so. How much of that do you do you take into account? You know, if if um, people are living through, you know, I don't know, systemic oppression, for instance, right, or um, you know, uh, endemic poverty, or, or you know, whatever the case might be, I, you know, maybe I don't know. Is the is the is the role to instill a positive mindset to be like, you know, to to make that person happy again, or is it to you know, um, you know, there's almost this like. Of toxic positivity that, that um, almost could be a yeah. thing, and, and um, yeah, I think we should, if we can, yeah. yeah, I think if we can try to override our emotional instincts and try and sort of a logical brain versus an emotional brain. Mm. So at the moment, we we do feel like we're under siege because of COVID nineteen. Yeah, um, and so. Um, you know, we don't have the same threats in our minds that maybe we, previous generations, the, the threat of war perhaps isn't quite as, as strong in, in many parts of the world. Uh, we've got, you know, people worry about interest rates or whether they're going to lose their house or whether they're going to lose their job or COVID-19. Um, I think, I think it's important to be positive uh, but I think, I mean, one of the things I tried doing is having a bit of a media blackout and trying to just yeah. stop being bombarded by messages and noise and media and trying to have a, trying to put my phone down and just trying to just smell, be in touch with my senses, with my immediate environment. And I think that's, um, 
think that's a good technique to sort of insulate yourself from this world that sometimes can feel quite threatening. Yeah, I am. Um, that's something that I, I, uh, hello? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Nick, you dropped I off can for a second. Great. Um, Sorry. I, I think that that's, that's uh, a, perhaps a useful technique and uh, something that I, I am always, I periodically try to do and get frustrated when people tell me the news. <laughs> I'm like, please, I'm trying to ignore the news. Can you, yes. can you leave it alone? Was it, I can't remember who said it, but if you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. But if you watch the news, you're misinformed. And, <laughs> and I think... It's about trying to keep a balance between those two things. Um, I think mobile phones are great, but they're also a, a bit of a curse. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you walk around there with all your photos, access to the internet. Um, it's not just for telephoning people anymore. It's social media, how many likes have you got? My social media footprint is almost zero. And I'm glad of that. I almost envy people who don't have a Facebook account. But I don't know whether if you don't have a Facebook account, does that then make you so antisocial and misanthropic that, uh, but yeah, there's so much, particularly young people have to contend with now. And I think we've got to try all sorts of measures just to, just to counter that. Because if we mm. passively allow these things to bombard us, it will bring us down. We don't have, Previous generations had such high infant mortality, uh, deaths, uh, life expectancy. So we don't have the sanitation issues in, in much of the world. We've got more wealth probably on a global level than we've ever had before. Better standards of living. But there also seems to be a lot of unhappiness, which we hear about because, we're, again, we're bombarded by it. Um, and I don't have the answers, but I do. we, we need to counter the emotional information that with logical, more rational ways of thinking. And I think the more logical and rational we can be, the more we will attenuate perhaps unnecessary emotion and unnecessary distress. Emotion's really important. Emotion keeps us alive. Emotion tells us signals to us when things aren't going well, or we need to take action. But I think sometimes we are slaves to our own emotion and they can actually torment us unnecessarily unless we use sort of ideas and techniques that other cultures indigenous cultures in particular are actually very very good at there's aspects of the western world that aren't progress that aren't better despite what we we get told yeah 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 definitely um and uh that that's it, it's something that um i uh I, th I think people are, are starting to um, be become more aware of and, and integrate more into their own lives and, and policy as well, I think is, is starting yes. to make uh, a Well, as an anthropologist this. like, like yeah. yourself, Adam, you, you, you're going to look at other cultures and say, they, we've dispensed with that and they yeah. had it done perfectly. It was awesome. We need yeah. to go back to that. A lot of that, like uh, in my what what I'm interested in, what I study a lot, it is to do with um, sort of uh, indigenous um, environmental knowledge um, and yes. how people form relationships with place in that way. And um, uh, it it 
Well, well, there, there are uh, interesting, I, I suppose, psychological implications of this, uh, particularly with cultures who um, view animals on a similar order to humans, um, and and they 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 form uh, more more sort of conscious, um, mutually beneficial relationships with with the landscape, and they treat uh, dogs in particular. Um, there's a group called the Runa who who sort of interpret dogs' dreams and talk to them that way and have this. Uh, reflexive relationship with their environment um but also for on a on a on a uh perhaps more um p- policy-minded basis for, for environmental knowledge away from from sort of psychology is uh it it's it's a way of of really knowing how um for example climate change is playing out on on local levels so there are there are yes. groups for example that uh we, we can say western science can show that the the carbon levels are rising and this was predicted to shrink ice caps but how this affects like salmon migration in the in the high arctic for example is 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 you need sort of indigenous well, knowledge for yeah and indigenous ideas on forest fires and and fire oh, management yeah. are, are way more progressive than uh some seemingly more contemporary ideas that we have now uh, there's yeah. a lot to be lot to be learned there and i agree there's a lot i i view we're, we're animals we're we're i you can say you can guess from what I said earlier that I see us as, I mean, humanist psychology is fine, but I don't think we're particularly special. Mm. I think we're just hairless apes, says me with a beard, but we, that's <laughs> what we are. We're, that's, that's all we are. Um, and that's my worldview. Yeah, I, I, um, I, and, it, and it's interesting how, uh, it would be very interesting to hear how, uh, the, you know, this, the kinds of distress that people go through are, are dealt with in, in other contexts. I am... Um, Attended a talk uh, last year um, from a from a shaman who um, who uh, practiced like ayahuasca. He like administered ayahuasca um, experiences, powerful hallucinogen. And uh, someone asked him, "What do you say to people who who say to you in the West, like, how can you just give people these hallucinogens?" He goes, "Look, it's not like we just do it. Like, there's a whole process, and it's it's like a you know we do it for a purpose." And it's so I think it would be interesting, although slightly off topic. Um, and, uh, and 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 John, thank you so much for talking to us. We've gone very long, and uh, I do just have one more question um, for you. Before, so just so we don't capitalize the whole day, there's so many more questions. Like you can edit now. this down, Adam. Maybe. You can edit this down. <laughs> um, I wanted to know, John, what um, what do you think uh, goes into a good life for you? This may or may not be related to what we've talked about, but what what for you represents the good life? Um. I think I'd sum it up in one word, meaning, mm. making life meaningful, because I, I mean, this might sound dreadfully nihilistic, but I don't think life inherently has meaning. I think we are, it's a miracle that we're here, a miracle uh, that I don't think uh, there's anything particularly special about any particular individual, but we are all unique and special but if we don't create a meaning for life then I think that's that's probably what makes a good life is creating something that has purpose and uh, and meaning because it's quite easy to say after we die of my worldview after we die we're gone we 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 rot into the ground and this this the life circle of life continues I don't believe in an afterlife or a soul or any of those things. Um, and so it's incumbent on, on us to create a meaning. And meaning for me is about family and 
helping others and being helped. That's great a response. great answer. Yep, great answer yeah. as, as uh, answers have been. Um, well, I, I, th I think maybe that's, we, we should uh, lead to, to wrap up there. Um, Thank you, thank you so much for all of all of your answers, John. It's been really wonderful to get these these insights from you, and uh, given given a lot to think about. Thank you. And, uh, and and I'm sure sure Nick, Nick feels similarly. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I I would ask at this point, John. Uh, we we normally do plugs. Is there anything you want to promote on the, on the podcast <laughs> at this at this point? Um, Have you got a self help book? John? <laughs> no, no, I've, I've, nothing. No, nothing. Uh, Josh. No, we don't no, have to. Not it's not obligatory. <laughs> no, all I, all I want is for Welsh rugby to to dominate. So if anybody, <laughs> well, we'll see today, right? Money, I mean, there's nothing more important than that, really. When you say about meaning, <laughs> if the Welsh team can win a rugby World Cup, then that's all that matters. So anybody wants to donate any of their money, the one piece of inherent meaningfulness to this. <laughs> <laughs> but no, nothing else to plug. And it's been a pleasure, guys. Uh, and um, all the best with the other podcasts. I will be listening, not to this one, but to the others. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, um, we 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 do do one 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 thing just to wrap up, which which we'll do quickly, uh, which is we sh we share a fun fact to cleanse our palate of the episode. Um, I don't know if you brought one along. If, if if you have or haven't, that that's totally fine. Um, but but Nick, well, would you? Or John, no, I think you, you should go for it, guys. I did have okay. one, but uh, I'm sure yours <laughs> yours would be better. No, we we've, we've all we, if you if you did if you do have one, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> okay, it's it, this this probably people know this, but uh, not so long ago, people thought the seats of the mind was in the human heart. So hmm. that's a. Uh, that's an interesting one. I think there's probably we'll learn more about the heart as time goes on. But uh, yeah, not so long ago, a few centuries ago, we thought that basically the brain was a cooling system for the body rather than the seat of the mind. Uh, we thought that was the heart. So there we go. What, what on earth do we know, think we know now that uh, <laughs> is so wrong that we'll find out in years to come? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm sure a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, thank um, you. Nice thanks very much. Nick, would you like to go ahead? Yeah, so um, I've I've been uh, thematically uh, uh, sticking to trees um, and uh, uh, everything that pertains <laughs> to them uh, for uh, drawing sources for my fun facts. I just have a, a, a short, short, sweet uh, fun fact, which is that on average a large oak tree will transpire about 150,000 liters of water in a year which is um, uh, a hell of a lot of water on average 40 percent of rainfall of the land originates from evapotranspiration from um, plants wow. yeah but yeah so if you thought you sweat liters a year that's great tree facts strong on the tree facts this season nick um <laughs> And mine, uh, totally unrelated, vaguely related plants. I got I got the inspiration for this after watching the recent news about a uh, uh, GameStop shop, Game Shop stock. Um, and this is oh, about yes, uh, yes. that it is um, illegal in Chicago, in the United States even, to trade onion futures due to the 1958 Onion Futures Act. After two traders in 1955 
purchased 98% of the onions in Chicago and crashed the onion prices by withholding them uh, whilst they also <laughs> held short positions on onion futures, making a fortune. Um, so that is why it's illegal to trade onion futures in the United States. There's always a reason. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I feel well, nourished um, by that information, Adam. I'm glad. I'm glad. It was. Uh, I like to. Uh, no take the, <laughs> I like the palate cleansers to be complete non sequiturs. So, yeah. <laughs> well, um, John, yeah, thanks so much for, for doing this episode with us. Um, Nick, thanks for, for your insightful questions. And uh, thank you to you, dear listener, for, for listening. And with love and rage, goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>